Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. These days, whenever ESPN injury analyst Stefania Bell meets an elite athlete who has undergone surgery to perform core muscle repair, she has a good idea about who might have performed the procedure. Dr. William Myers has been at the forefront of core muscle injury treatment dating back to the late 1980s when he pioneered efforts to diagnose and treat this problem that somehow gained popular awareness under a different and misleading name, sports hernia. Interestingly, Bell first learned about this condition decades ago when she read a scientific paper authored by Dr. Myers referring to this condition by yet another name, athletic pubalgia. It was that paper that allowed Bell to identify a core muscle injury in a semi-pro soccer player she was treating at the time who wasn't responding to treatment. Eventually, Bell and Dr. Myers met in person, and in this episode of Move Forward Radio, they're together again to provide a fascinating overview of this still sometimes hard-to-diagnose problem that can hinder an athlete's power and explosiveness. Here's our conversation with Stefania Bell and Dr. William Myers. So I want to call this a touching and cool story of two people who met over sports hernia, uh, but of course that would be a mistake right from the start because we're not supposed to be calling it that. So Dr. <laughs> Myers, I want to start with that very basic principle. Um, people know this to the degree that they know it as sports hernia. Uh, what should they know it as and why the heck is there's this confusion over what to call it? Well, I'm a little bit worried about uh, that last uh, statement in terms of we met over a sports hernia. I mean, it's uh, it a double entendre there somewhere. Um, it's, it's, the term sports hernia is a swear word around here um, at the Vinceri Institute, which is devoted to the uh, core. And um, when I first got into this, um, it was back in uh, really the mid-'80s, and I was down at Duke University, which is where I was most of my life. And at that time, um, I had a very large uh, liver uh, surgery practice, and I was uh, as doing as a, as a hobby. I would help take care of the, the Duke teams and the U.S. soccer team and, um, and a few other things. I kept getting referred uh, many patients with undiagnosed abdominal pain or groin pain of some sort or adductor pain, some, somewhere in the middle of the body there. And nobody uh, uh, seemed to have a good feel for what these things were. And, uh, of course, the way you get trained as a doctor is you get trained in, in specific uh, specialties. I was trained in general thoracic surgery. And we were taught that the pelvis really was uh, something that really just contained certain organs. And, and uh, as a general surgeon, you, you think of it as like the colon and the rectum and, and, and small intestine and these little protrusions called hernias. And then uh, gynecologists, of course, would be thinking about the tubes and the ovaries, et cetera, et cetera. And the urologists will think of it as the bladder. And, and uh, now the orthopedic surgeons, who really are the ones logically should be involved in this field, really are, you know, who are focused on muscles and bones. They they are afraid to get in the pelvis because of those organs I just mentioned, as well as the blood vessels, et cetera. And so you're sort of trained in the silo. Um, and 
of course, these patients were being uh, referred to general surgeons, and they just, on the basis of their training, thought that, oh, there must be little uh, occult hernias, little protrusions that we're just not seeing, and that must be the cause because that's really all you know. You're within your the, the borders of your own eyes. And the term sports hernia uh, therefore evolved. Now, at that time, in the mid-'80s, the term sports hernia was actually banned uh, from the medical literature. And so I had this prejudice against the term from back then, but then when I was starting to see all these patients coming to me, one was, I remember, a center fielder for the uh, Burlington Indians, a minor league team of the Indians at the time in North Carolina, and the uh, second one was actually a, uh, a goalkeeper at Wake Forest, and the uh, third one was one of the guards uh, on our basketball team at Duke. And they each had something different. It was sort of fleeting pain that would go from the abdomen down to the adductors, et cetera. And so knowing that this was a this was sort of a stumping diagnosis for most folks, um, I actually brought my fourth-year medical student over to the cadaver lab. And we were just beginning at Duke, and, and uh, so there were fresh tissues. And I actually had uh, my medical student uh, put her, um, you know, you have to think of the, the cadaver on its back, and uh, I had her, the medical student put her finger behind the three adductor muscles in the thigh, and uh, and that, it's right on top of some uh, really sharp bone. There's some little teeth get projected from uh, what's called the anterior edge of the inferior pubic ramus. Um, but she had her finger back there, and I took actually some scissors, and a good 18 inches above where her finger was, up in the abdomen, I cut a portion of a muscle. And I asked her ahead of time to let me know if she felt anything. And, um, and there are actually several people around observing. And as soon as I cut it, she actually let out a scream. Uh, what had happened was the portion of the pelvis had jolted forward and the, and the teeth, those uh, bony teeth, jammed into her finger. And um, but we what we had done was we had realized that the um, the muscles uh, from below the pubic bone, the thigh muscles, the adductor muscles, uh, connected somehow with the abdominal muscles from above, and and that is the uh, thinking, the overall concept of uh, how the pelvis worked. And so, if you injure a muscle, you're going to get some. Um, Reaction or compensation with the other muscles that, are, that, that connect or are nearby, uh, and uh, so you will have a combination of an injury plus over pulling of the other muscles. And it's a matter of then it becomes a matter of just sort of figuring out where it is. Now sometimes the bladder and other things get involved in this uh, because of uh, they, they, they live nearby. So we decided to uh, the, the first term we called it was. Uh, athletic pubalgia in our first paper, which we presented in, I think, 1989 to the um, Association for Sports Medicine. And we call it athletic pubalgia because we didn't want to have the term hernia in it uh, because of the fact that it wasn't hernias. We thought that was a misleading term. The first term we decided to call it was athletic pubalgia, which is really a, a vague term uh, describing uh, pain in the pubic region. Um, in athletes, of course, and then uh, as we studied more, we did we've done many more of these uh, cadaver labs uh, or uh, studies, and, um, and it really 
turns out that we should be calling the entire area from the mid-thigh uh, mid to mid-chest. Uh, we call that the core, and it fits with what physical therapists and what athletic trainers uh, really uh, um, have been describing for a long time. And it's really physical therapists and athletic trainers who recognize these injuries, that there's something in there muscularly or bony-wise that uh, is going on. And, and, and physicians, surgeons, uh, certainly like myself, have uh, had really been ignoring it for a long, long time. So the term uh, core um, has come in service, a book that's uh, called Introducing the Core, and there are four parts of it, but basically these are the core muscles, and um, and most of these injuries involve the core muscles. Uh, they often, often involve the ball and socket hip joints. So in a long-winded way, that's uh, and not nearly as articulately as Tanya, um, that's the story about the terminology. Well, you know, it's interesting. When, when I first read about it, I read Dr. Meyer's paper. It was referencing athletic pubalgia. Uh, but it had, it, you listed all these different things that could present under that. It was almost like a, a syndrome. There would be a constellation of different symptoms and findings, and it was hard to differentially diagnose. And somewhere around the time that I was learning about it, it had reached the sports vernacular somewhere to use the term sports hernia, and what you would hear would be, "Well, it's a, it's it's not a real hernia; it's a sports hernia." That's the disclaimer that always came after that because people who were using the term recognized it wasn't a true hernia. The problem was people unfamiliar with the term thought it was actually referencing a hernia, which was the case with my general surgeon who I worked with. And that's where all the confusion came about. The challenge with referencing athletic pubalgia in the public domain is that people just aren't comfortable using the term. So I think core muscle repair, even though it's a little bit longer to say, I think in my line of work it's worked pretty well because People have heard about core muscles now more and more. Everybody knows about working the core. So I think it conjures up an image that people can relate to, even if they don't know all the nuances of it, but they get it. Like, oh, it's, that core muscle is involved. I get where that is. And it is, by and large, predominantly a muscular injury. So I've seen the sports media start to transition over, and I'm seeing it referenced as a core muscle injury or a procedure to fix it called a core muscle repair, more and more, especially in the last couple of years. Yeah, I'll make two points related to that. Uh, one is that uh, Stefania, I think, really is, the, uh, is leading the way in terms of that, uh, or seems to be from, from my perspective, in terms of uh, that term uh, becoming accepted. And um, the second point is that the term core and core muscles and hip and back, there's a way to think about the back, uh, and then referring to, to these injuries as core muscle injuries is probably the right term because it really gets people to ask the question, hey, what muscle are you talking about? And that's the right thinking process. And it's, uh, so you, you can then describe the muscle or muscles. And I think certain of the injuries are going to be um, described uh, and become sort of common practice or, or commonly in people's uh, brain. Uh, just like the, the ACL, or anterior cruciate injury, has been in the public vernacular, um, I think there's going to be certain core muscle injury uh, injuries that will become fairly commonplace. Because it really is as common an injury. It's actually much more common an injury than the anterior cruciate ligament 
So I want to get back into the, the sort of general part of this core muscle injury. But before I do that, um, whether you're calling it athletic pubalgia or sports hernia, that athletic and sports were right there from the beginning. That was obviously intrinsic to sort of the, the first initial um, growing understanding of this injury. And, and so I want to focus on that first real quick. And, Stefania, as you are, you know, in your rotations through ESPN and seeing injuries pop up, how common is what we now consider core muscle injury in sports? It's common. Like Dr. Myers was saying, it's, I think it's a more common entity than has been recognized. And as more and more people come to learn about what it is or recognize what it is, we're now seeing it more. It's interesting because that carries a perception with it. I, I think people hear it now and they say, oh, well, everyone's got that now. Kind of like, you know, now you've seen one, they're all labeled that. I just think before nobody knew what to call them. I saw a number of patients in my practice uh, when I was first seeing these. In fact, I told Dr. Myers when I read his paper and, and then I saw that soccer player come in and I he just fit the bill, I thought to myself, you know, I didn't think I had seen this before, but I think the problem had seen me. <laughs> you know, I just didn't know how to recognize it. And so as people become more educated on it, and that's why I think it's great that you're doing this podcast, I think it's far more common. We see football players every year. We hear about NFL players who are being uh, sidelined because of this type of injury. And you might hear it referenced as, you know, they start off with a groin injury or an adductor strain, or they have an abdominal tear. And then if you come back and find out, they, they talk about the procedure that they underwent was a core muscle repair, they can all fit under this umbrella, which, which Dr. Myers can certainly explain. But all these athletes have that in common. Baseball players, we're seeing it in baseball players as well. I think really any sport where you have power and explosiveness, uh, you're going to see it. Uh, gymnasts can get it. It's fine. I've certainly been more common in my experience amongst men, but I don't know that that's always necessarily the case. When you hear now um, that a player, you know, a professional athlete, an elite athlete, is going to have core muscle repair in this day and age, what does that mean to you from your ESPN analyst perspective? That's going to cost them, what, weeks, months, how much time? Well, usually I think in weeks it's important to note that since they are unique injuries, there can be a big range in terms of times of recovery. Uh, some people will have injuries on both sides of the pelvis. Some people will have multiple muscle tears. Some people have one very small localized tear. So a combination of how long they were dealing with it beforehand because you have to re-educate the neuromotor planning, essentially, of the whole region, the core. You have to strengthen the area that's been weak. And depending how long they've been chronically compensating for something, it could take quite some time for them to get back to top form. On the other hand, uh, an elite athlete with a very acute definitive injury, I've seen them return in under six weeks. So, it, again, it's a range depending on the specific nature of the problem, but I think the one key takeaway for me is that they don't all present exactly alike that it really depends on the anatomy of that person, uh, functionally what their loss is as well, how long they've been dealing with it, and uh, that all factors into how quickly they can get back. 
when you think about the entire region of the body, uh, this is your engine um, of mid-chest to mid-thigh, you actually are, in the core muscles, you're including uh, other muscles as well, such as the hamstrings and the uh, rectus femoris muscles and a, and a bunch of other ones. And, and when you consider that as a, as a group, um, there's many uh, types of injuries, uh, depending on what muscles are involved, and there's, there's multiple levels of severity. So, uh, the, the, actually, the majority of the injuries you don't have to do surgery on. But what's evolved from that has been that the, um, that we're talking about the specific, uh, what we call the harness muscles. Uh, if you consider the rectus abdominis muscle, the, the most front muscle in your body, uh, attaching to the pubic bone, and you think of the pubic bone like a baseball with a hard leather cover to it. And then your adductor muscles, the muscles on the inside of your thigh, actually connect to the rectus abdominis muscle through that cover of the baseball. So you think of a baseball sitting right there where the pubic bone is, and you've got uh, a cover, a baseball cover, and they're all attaching to the same cover. Uh, if you get an injury on one side of it where you get some, even think about some shredding of the muscle, like uh, like pulling on 200 pieces of rope, then you start to overcompensate with the other muscles, and you end up with a tug of war on the cover of the baseball, and the cover gets loose with time, just like uh, the old baseball, one that my mother used to get mad at me about when I left the, left the baseball out overnight and the, and the get all soggy and, and there actually be fluid in between the cover and the baseball. That's what happens. Your athleticism comes through those uh, that group of muscles with the pubic bone cover, and uh, that's how you shift. That's how Marshawn Lynch or Adrian Peterson will shift uh, going from side to side or in any sport. Now, when you carry that concept, those two concepts forward, and you think in terms of the specific sport or specific position that they're playing, uh, from repetitive uh, micro trauma just of the just during practice, what a third baseman does, the baseman does, to compare to what a pitcher does, uh, you're going to actually get different types of injuries, and so uh, the return to sport will depend on uh, proper diagnosis and then what type of injury it is uh, and if surgery is required. Um, it can be as quick as like a three to four week type thing if it's just a simple muscular injury even though the first phase of healing lasts six weeks they can get back pretty quickly. Uh, the, uh, on the other hand if it's really ripped apart that baseball cover uh, it's going to be a six seven week sort of minimum type thing to get people back all the way. So it, and then it comes down to you know the playoffs coming up or um, is it the off-season in terms of how quickly you, you try to get them back. But early return actually turns out to be good from the standpoint of the absence of scar tissue problems. So just like uh, people have been getting people on their feet right away after total hip operations, for these types of things, uh, we are starting their rehab the next day, and uh, that really helps prevent some of the issues that come up with scar tissue. I was just going to say there are a couple things. One is, um, and I'm glad Dr. Myers mentioned it, that people get moving right away. They may not be doing a lot. They may just be getting up. They may be walking. It may be fairly simple in the first few days, but they are moving right away. And if they're not moving enough, uh, then they can develop excess scar. They can lose mobility, and that becomes a bigger problem. Uh, for the, As far as uh, the return to functionality, I've had some pro athletes who come through along the way at ESPN I've talked to about this, where we've talked about their performance levels, and some will be back and they feel they feel fine, but they don't feel like they're um, as comfortable.
basketball, like completely free and easy until they've been doing their sport again for a while. And it's just like anything, whether they had an ACL reconstruction or, a, you know, significant ankle injury that they were coming back from. Part of it is a confidence level because if they had this injury and they know what it felt like before, they develop an apprehension of when those symptoms are going to strike. So even after they're recovered, sometimes they don't quite go at 110% because they're worried about what will happen. So sometimes it takes them a little bit to get past that. But um, the other point that Dr. Myers made is the seasonal calendar can can definitely drive some things. So uh, sometimes people will push to come back a little bit sooner and kind of the rehab finishes as they're already back and return to sport. But uh, immediately what I noticed the most when I was seeing patients on my own is that the the power that they can generate to do the one thing they really can't do when they're disabled by this, which is run, is dramatically different, dramatically different. So, Dr. Myers, you know, the thing that you talked about, the range of of severity and injury, and then, of course, the range of the treatment. So, you know, briefly indicate to me first, what's somebody going to show up in your office complaining of that leads to the examination in the first place? What are you looking for, and what determines if surgery is necessary or not? Well, the patient or the athlete or the non-athlete or the um, weekend warrior, uh, each of them is going to have his or her own concepts about what what they're expecting in life and, and in terms of activity. And um, most people actually have the the uh, attitude. It's actually a, uh, uh, and I believe in it, but not everybody does, that, uh, that being in really good shape uh, translates to longevity. But you're going to have arguments from the cardiologists and stuff related to that. Um, so it really depends. I mean, it's a quality of life thing. It's not a... Uh, a life-threatening thing for the most part. So you don't have to um, operate on um, on each person. But um, the primary indication for surgery is um, the central injuries, number one, uh, origin of where the muscles um, come from or what they attach to. And the, and the patient is experiencing pain that uh, the person doesn't want to tolerate. Um, and so as you get up in levels in terms of uh, high-performance athletes, that's going to be a much finer distinction um, uh, in terms of what Stefania was talking about, uh, where they have the maximum confidence in terms of being able to do what they want to do. I've operated on uh, three of the top six uh, sprinters last year and, uh, and the hundred in the Olympics. And the, and the um, each of them was not able to attain their uh, their personal best times, and were very frustrated because they had some degree of pain. Now, that pain would have been tolerated by a soccer player, maybe, or perhaps a um, certainly by a weekend warrior. Um, so that bar in terms of hey, when do you do something about it, uh, can really change from individual to individual. You take a uh, third baseman for the Washington Nationals. Um, he just couldn't play with a particular abdominal injury that that uh, third baseman get or divers get. It's a hyperextension sort of thing um, where your belly just stretches right out and and can rip rip in various ways. And he just couldn't play. And um, and so it was really obvious that uh, he needed to have something done. So um, you know, if you're in a 60 or 70 year old, maybe you're going to be 
uh, tolerate anything's better, but um, that's not true in terms of the patient just a few minutes ago I just finished operating on. He's one of the top, uh, he's still ranked number seven or something like that in the jujitsu stuff, and he's 60 years old, and he had one of the, he's been tolerating a pain now for a couple of years. He he, wanted, he has a big tournament he wants to get back to in, uh, in six weeks, and uh, he has such a severe injury. I'm, I couldn't be confident that he's definitely going to make that back, uh, make it back that quickly. But um, he, um, age doesn't turn out to be as big a factor as one might think. And so then the surgery itself, what's, what's typically the procedure involved in there? What, what are you typically repairing as part of basically this core injury repair? Yeah, the um, now again, it uh, depends on which particular muscle you're talking about and uh, what groups of muscles. Because often, one of the most important things to realize is that it's usually not just one muscle you're dealing with. It can be um, almost always a compensatory type of muscle, or it can be a combination of muscle and hip. We see a lot of hip impingement. We're actually operating on patients fixing their hip and the muscles at the same time when it's appropriate. We've done a large number of the last couple of years in terms of that. And... The, but you've got to take into consideration the um, not only the obvious injury you see on MRI, uh, but you um, need to look for the more subtle injuries that you can almost always see on MRI as well. And sometimes you need diagnostic tests where you inject uh, with some numbing medicine, some you know, local anesthesia, uh, different muscles to figure out, hey, is it this muscle or that muscle that's causing the problem? And um, it's almost always just a simple combination of repairing the muscle directly in ways that's not going to recur again, uh, just, just with stitches, um, uh, with uh, decompressing some of the muscle, other muscles because the muscles are prone to tight, so you cut through the envelopes of the muscle so it's not um, pulling as, as tight. So it's a combination of weakness and too much pulling that, uh, that you've got to um, address in order to fix the problem completely. So, Stefania, my, my question for you is now that this core muscle injury is becoming more uh, understood um, consistently across the board, especially amongst elite athletes, um, is the response becoming a little bit more normalized? So, for example, um, you know, Tommy John surgery is something that in the past was probably de- dealt with uh, very differently from team to team, instance to instance, and now it seems that each franchise has sort of their own probably pretty similar way of rehabbing athletes with that injury. Are we starting to get a sense that uh, at the elite levels of sports that there's sort of a common approach to rehabbing core muscle injuries? I think um, when injury initially happens, depending on, you know, where it's localized to and what the rehab staff think is involved, they're going to follow their instinct on how to approach that. I think what I see in the elite athletes is that if they're, if it's something that is not responding to treatment or if uh, the medical staff thinks there's the potential where a decision about surgery needs to be made or if they need assistance with a differential diagnosis. The one name that you hear is Dr. Bill Myers because that's still who everybody relies on to help them out in differentiating this injury from other things. And I think it's great on the one hand because everybody has so much confidence in him, but uh, the challenge is when are we going to have people who are equally skilled at being able to differentially diagnose this. It's a hard thing because, as he mentioned, it, there's a lot of orthopedic surgeons, and I've talked to them. They want no part 
of dealing with that part of the body. That's not really something they're interested or feel like they're able to operate on. It's not an area where they, they train doing many surgeries. And a number of general surgeons don't necessarily have the exposure to the athletic population who's going to present with this uh, in a routine enough way that they're comfortable dealing with it. So I think one of the, the really good things that uh, Dr. Myers has taken on at his institute there is educating surgeons who have a particular interest in this entity. But right now, that's the normalized response in the professional sports world is if you think it's this, that's where the athlete's going to go to get either confirmation or help in, in making decision about what, what the next steps will be. The situation right now in medicine, I think, is still a mess in terms of dealing with these injuries. Um, still, physical therapists and athletic trainers understand it way better than physicians do, and as a general rule, and that's not across the board, of course. But this pressure uh, related to healthcare right now, which is uh, is tricky. General surgeons are still seeing this as a hernia, and I call it hernia. And right now, what we're doing, what I'm doing, is not in the mainstream of medicine. In fact, uh, most insurance companies say, "Oh, this is experimental," even though there's zillions of papers out there. And my focus right now is to get this into the mainstream. That's the and. Um, the, but it's not in the mainstream in terms of fellowships or, or there's no governmental funding for it. What's good, though, is that people like Stefani and other people are grabbing a hold of this and saying, wait a minute, these are real problems. Uh, it just really comes down to understanding the, the anatomy and the, and the physiology and that sort of stuff. So on that note, let's close out with this. You know, there's Stefania's, uh would like to basically clone you to get more Dr. Myers's out there who are ready. You you are trying to spread awareness and all those those uh, things that you mentioned. But my question to you is, in terms of the treatment itself, in terms of evolving the approach to uh, treating this injury, are there next steps for that? What are the next things you would like to do in terms of the treatment itself? I'll do it in two parts. Uh, one is that I am clonable. Um, everybody tells me I am. And the... Um, but it really comes down to uh, education in terms of getting people in there, understanding it, et cetera. And, um, and that means you can't, and I've gotten burnt a bunch of times where people come in and look and do one, see one procedure and then think that one procedure is, oh, it's, that's how they take, that's what a sports attorney is and then, then they apply that to the world. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's a whole bunch of different injuries. The most important thing is education. The second thing is the, um, the evolution of this is going to have to first pass through um, people understanding it. And then the second thing is uh, that the uh, instrument companies are uh, uh, just starting to partner with us in terms of being able to do through these through really tiny incisions too. Different, different involves different types of instruments um, and the uh, creating that sort of stuff. So. So the uh, even though the return to play is fast right now, uh, I think there are ways we can make it even faster. Stefani Bell, Dr. William Myers, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. My privilege. Uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, be on the same, what do we call it, podium in a, pod- a podcast? Is it? Is that it? Um, as Stefani and yourself. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. 
Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.